times if I put this on, doesn't it? <laughs> How y'all doing this morning? Excellent. Uh, if you have your copy of Scripture, you've probably already turned there to Exodus chapter 33 as we continue through the book of Exodus. Um, today I've entitled the sermon, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Not to make light of this, but you'll see why I use that phrase uh, for this passage. Because this is a point where if you understand the whole concept of what we've studied through the book of Exodus, what we see here is a relationship that was beginning to form between God and his people. There's even that kind of language, that kind of marriage covenantal language that he used from the very beginning to the end. Matter of fact, I've told you this before, but just to remind you, there are five stages to a Jewish wedding ceremony. If you ever go to one, you'll see all five of them present. All five of those are present in the exact order in the book of Exodus. You see every bit of it there, with it culminating with the ketubah, which is the exchanging of the vows in a wedding ceremony. In the book of Exodus, we see it with the ten words that are exchanged between God and the people on Mount Sinai. And as you follow that, you see the same exact kind of flow. You have a wedding ceremony, you have the sealing of the covenant, you have a celebration, and then the couple moves in together, okay? You have that same thing. You have the covenant there on Mount Sinai. You have God inviting them up to fellowship with him on top of the mountain. So uh, Moses and Joshua, Aaron, and 70 elders go up, and they have this feast. And then God gives them instructions to build the tabernacle, because I'm going to come and dwell among you. Then, of course, as God is giving Moses all of this direction, what happens is, God says, go on down there because they've already violated the covenant. They've already violated one of the covenants that we have right here that we just agreed to here on the mountain. Now, again, I want you to realize we're only a month and a half removed from Egypt. It's not like it was years ago that this happened. We're only a month and a half removed from them exiting out of Egypt and seeing God's power displayed in this incredible way. And yet now their hearts have already turned away. So Moses goes down, this was our passage last week, when Moses goes down, he sees what happened, he breaks the, breaks the commandments that God had written, and he begins to really lament over this decision of the people. You see him grind up the golden calf, put it in their water, make them drink it, and that's kind of the picture that we had. Now, our passage today continues with the next part of this. And notice what it says there. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. Now I want you to notice the language there, because as Moses and God have had this conversation for the past few verses, even last week into this week, you see this very interesting use of language, especially the pronouns, where God keeps saying to Moses, your people that you brought out of Egypt, and Moses keeps saying to God, your people that you brought out of Egypt. And he goes, no, these are your people that you brought out of Egypt. And no, these are your people that you brought out of Egypt. And, and there's this, I think there's an intentionality to that. Um, God is making very known that he realizes the people don't want him. The people don't want to come under his rule and reign. The people don't want to be obedient to him. Um, and Moses is basically responding, saying, no, I know who brought them out of Egypt. It wasn't me. It was you. And these are your people because you said from the beginning that you were going to be their God and they were going to be your people. And this is a growing part for Moses. This is a spiritual growth for him because 
if you remember where Moses was from the beginning of this, Moses is really beginning to coalesce, if you will, into the will of God. He knows what his purpose is. He understands what God is trying to do, and he's working in concert with that. And last week, we saw how Moses referred to uh, God saying, hey, God, I, I know you're the one that brought them out of Egypt. Remember what you did. Remember who you are. In other words, don't let the people of Egypt say, well, God, that God, that Yahweh just drug his people out in the wilderness and annihilated them. And he says, remember what you promised to do. Like you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you were going to take their descendants into the land. So Moses there, God does this for Moses' benefit. He's beginning to realize, you know what? This is what I stand on. I don't stand on my own merit. I stand on who you are, what you promised to do, and what you have always done. And so that's what Moses goes to for his argument. And now as you come to this passage here, we see this language where God says he's going to be faithful to what he promised, but he's going to send the people ahead and he's not going to go with them. Look at how it continues in verse 2. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, Parasites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and the Bill of Rights, Mosquito Bites, and the Slagtites, and all the otherites. So um, God is promising there again victory for them. In other words, you are going to go into the land. I'm going to send an angel that's going to fight the battle for you. In other words, I'm still not going to send you alone. I'm not abandoning you and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to give you any help. No, I'm going to send an angel ahead of you, and the angel is going to assure you the battle, and is going to assure you conquest of the land, and you're going to have all the blessing that I promised to the descendants of Abraham. Look at verse 3. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I want you to get this. Now, up to this point right here, this is amazing news. It's amazing news when you take into consideration that they had violated the covenant of God, that God wanted to consume them, that Moses intervenes for them, and, and the best you probably they could hope for is, well, maybe we can just set up something here in the wilderness. Maybe we can get along. Maybe we can just be satisfied with, this is as far as we can go spiritually. Maybe we just can't handle that kind of blessing. And yet God says to them, no, I'm going to be faithful to the promise. Even though you've been unfaithful to me, I'm going to be faithful to you. Even though you didn't do what you promised you would do, I'm still going to do what I promised I would do. I'm going to take you to the land. I'm going to make sure that it's yours. I'm going to send an angel before you to fight the battles. And you're going to take the land. And it's a land flowing with milk and honey. All the blessings of the covenant you're going to have. It's awesome to know that God is a God who remembers his promises. He remembers what he promised to Abraham. And renewed with Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the people and Moses even. God is going to give them victory. He's going to give them victory over their enemies, and he's going to use an appointed angel to do that. Now, it's very interesting, the language here, because up to this point in the scripture, every time it talks about an angel, it talks about an angel of the Lord. But the word here is just like common angel. Now, the reason I think that is significant is because there are many authors, many scholars that believe whenever there's a reference to the angel of the Lord, that that might be a theophany or is sometimes even a Christophany. Those are big words meaning that is an actual presence of God or the presence of Jesus among the people. Whenever it's an angel of the Lord, that seems to be a very specific person that is somehow related to uh, God's 
presence, his very presence with the people. But this term here is just an ordinary angel. So in other words, one of the heavenly messengers, I'm going to send them. That's all you need. They can take care of the people and wipe them out and just move them out of the land. And the land is going to be yours. So the promised land is in sight again for them. Now, I'm sure at some point in this whole conversation, this point in in all the events as they have transpired, that something has crossed their minds, convincing them that probably the promised land is out of reach. You know what? With how things have gone, remember all the complaining that they've done, and and they complained about this and that, the accommodations and the food, and now they've violated the covenant. God wanted to consume them. They're probably thinking, you know what, the promised land is probably out of reach, and yet now all of a sudden the promised land is inside again. If you think about everything so far, you would think that this would be the point that God says to them, you're not going in until you get your act together. That's what we would assume God would say. In other words, we're not expecting God to say, hey, I'm going to be faithful to everything I promise you're going to do. Hey, you're going to go into the land. Hey, I'm still going to defeat your enemies. You're going to have the blessings of the land flowing with milk and honey. We're not expecting that. We're expecting God to say, you're not going into the land until you get your act together. I'm not giving you anything if you're going to be just a bunch of idol worshipers, always complaining, always sinning group of people that you are. That's kind of what we would expect at this point, for God to lay down the law and say, listen, until you get these areas of your life together, you're not walking into the land. Instead, he goes, guess what? I'm giving you the land. I'm going to send you there. I'm going to send you on ahead, and you're going to have all of that blessing. God is a God who remembers. He remembers the promises that he made. He remembers the covenant that he established, and he plans to be faithful to what he promised to do, even though the people have been unfaithful in every way that they've related to him. I think this is a great lesson for us today, to remember this truth right here. Listen, the goodness of God is not earned. It is a gift of God received by faith. You never earn the promised land or the land flowing with milk and honey because you deserved it, because you were good enough, because your morality somehow necessitates it. No, anything that you have that is good is something that has been given to you by God And you have received it because of faith, because of trusting him at his word. God is always faithful to do what he promises, no matter what. God isn't looking for a person with a perfect life. He's looking for that person who just has a mustard seed of faith. That's all he's looking for. He's looking for that one who says, I don't know how far you can take me. But I'm going to trust you at your word. I don't know if I'm the man for the job. I don't know if I'm the woman for this. I don't know if I'm the person who has what it takes to do what you're asking me to do. But if you're asking me to do it and you just need someone to volunteer, God, I'm here. That's all he's looking for. You know, that should be a freeing truth for us this morning. God is always faithful and you can never earn the blessings of God. Now, I wish that was the only lesson that we have in this passage, but I want you to look at how verse 3 ends. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Wow, that, that took an unexpected turn really fast. 
I mean, all of a sudden in the conversation, there's hope. You're going to get to go to the land. I'm just going to send the angel ahead of you. I'm still going to defeat your enemies. It's still a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to experience all the blessings, but I'm not going to go up among you. That must have been crushing news for Moses to hear, crushing news for the people to hear. You know, it's always difficult when you lose a leader. And up to this point, God truly has been their leader. Now, Moses is the one who told them what God is saying, but very quickly, God is establishing that Moses isn't able to do these things on his own. I still have to take care of you. I could just send you with Moses if Moses was the one who was doing these things, but I still got to send an angel with you because Moses hasn't been the one doing these things. He's not the one that's secured victory for you. He's not the one who's providing for you in the wilderness. It's been me, and I'm going to continue to be your provider, but I'm going to send you on, and I'm going to let you have all the blessing that I promised. The only thing is I'm not going with you. I'm going to do what I said I would do, I'm going to be faithful to my word, but I'm not going to be with you. Now, this seems weird, doesn't it? It seems so unlike God, doesn't it? But there's something very important to understand, and I think the understanding is found in the wording. Look at it again. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. Okay, do you notice that word there? I will not go up among you. It doesn't say I will not go up ahead of you. It doesn't even say, I'm not going with you. It says, I'm not going up among you. Now, here's the thing. If you were thinking that somehow God was abandoning his people at this point, that's not what he's doing. Okay? He's not saying, hey, you go on there and I'm just going to stay right here in the wilderness. What he's saying is, all of that stuff that I just told you about building the tabernacle, that's on hold. Because as long as you are these stiff-necked people, I'm not going to come and live among you. That's the white reason the wording is so important right there. Among you is that same language where he says, hey, I want you to build this tabernacle because I'm going to come and dwell among you. So for him to say, I'm not going to go up among you, means I'm still going with you. I'm going to oversee it. I'm going to send an angel ahead. I'm going to provide everything, but I'm not going to come and dwell in your midst. You know why? Because you don't understand and appreciate who I am and what I'm doing for you. You see, sin always separates us from God. Even after you become a believer, your sin still separates you from God. It doesn't separate you from the blessing of salvation. It doesn't separate you from the promises of God. It just separates your relationship with him. It damages it, in other words. In other words, you can't keep living in willful sin and have a right relationship with God. Every time we sin, it pulls us away from God. It pulls us a little bit further, a little bit further, till we feel very distant. Now, we may still even be praying, but even our prayers are hindered in that moment. We, we, we don't feel connected. We almost say to ourselves, you know what, God's not really going to listen to this because I know what I'm doing and I know he doesn't like this. So I don't even know why I'm spending my time praying. And our prayer life even begins to diminish. Sin always separates us from God. Yes, in a very big way, in a, an eternal way when we don't accept Christ as our Savior, but even after accepting Christ as our Savior, sin still has that effect on us. It hurts us. It hurts our relationship with God. Now, in a moment, it can be restored. All it takes is repentance. All it takes is acknowledging it. All it takes is that repentance and asking God to forgive us, and we have immediate restoration. Again, we don't have to earn it. We don't have to prove that we're going to do what we're saved. Immediately, our sins are forgiven. The scripture says 
that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, immediately made whole again in Christ. Okay, That's the power of the cross and the substitute that Christ became for us. But at the same time, when we do sin, and especially when we continue on willful sin, it hurts our relationship with God. And I think that's what we see here. God's saying, you're not going to benefit from having an intimate relationship with me and me being there if you're going to continue in this obstinate way of relating to me. That's the reason I entitled this, Breaking Up is Hard to Do. Because this has been the context of Exodus from the very beginning. And now all of a sudden they've entered into this relationship. And there's supposed to be this beautiful story that's going to unfold. And immediately you have an unfaithful partner. And the other person is looking at this going, you know, I'm not being appreciated. They're not even recognizing me for what I've done and who I am. And the source of everything good that I've brought into their life. Instead, they want to give everything that belongs to me, the glory and the worship, to an inanimate object that they've created with their own hands. You see, God isn't doing this because he's mad. He already knew this was an ungrateful people. God isn't doing this because of their sin. He already knew that they were sinners. Matter of fact, you think about it, before they ever created the golden calf, God had already given instructions on a uh, a tabernacle that the first thing was going to be an altar of sacrifice where they had to make sacrifices for their sins. God already knew they were sinners and they were going to need to be justified. God is doing this for their benefit. God is saying this to them for their safety. The reason God says, I'm not going to go with you, is not because he's mad. He's saying, Listen, if I go up among you, not a one of you will be left. Did you see what just happened? I'm not even among you. 3,000 of you have already died. Why? Because that's how holy I am, and that's how unholy you are. And the closer my holiness gets to your unholiness, it's going to be detrimental to you. And that's what he's saying there. He's not saying that I'm going to come out there and I'm going to get so mad that I'm going to consume you. What he's saying is I am a just God and my standards never change just because you are a sinful people. And therefore, the closer my holiness gets to your unholiness, it's going to consume you. It's not safe for you, for me to be in your midst. We're going to have to figure something out because you're not going to make it. You won't even make it out of the wilderness. If I come up among you. Now, the reason I know that this is the context of it is because if you see how the the text continues on, you get this picture that Moses is the opposite of the people. And Moses even says, God, I want to know you. I want to know you in a more intimate way. God, can I see your glory? And God says to him, you can't see my face, but I'm going to pass by and hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to let you see where I just was. That's as close as you're able to get. But there's a difference because the people aren't desiring this, but Moses is. Moses has seen something about God. He's seen something in this relationship. He's drawn him. I want to know you. I want to see what you're like. I want to experience more of you. Now, if you think about this for a moment, God calls them the stiff-necked people. (laughs) It reminds me, last week I actually had that as my title, but I changed it to stiff-neck people. I put the E-D after and I, and I knew I was doing that, but the reason was, and I'm not going to say who, but someone looked at my notes and said, who are stiff-necked people? And I looked at them and I said, that is not how you spell naked. 
that's naked, and it does look like that. So I am going to change it. So I did change it. But anyway, um, this is actually an agricultural term. Now go to the next slide. This is the picture of what it's talking about there. The stiff-necked people is talking about an animal that has to be harnessed, okay? This is what we would call a yoke. So they're bearing a yoke. Now, you would sit there and go, well, what's the purpose of the yoke? The purpose of the yoke is that these two would work in concert with one another in using their energy to pull whatever agricultural device they're pulling for the benefit of the farmer, okay? Because if they're not yoked together, one's going to walk this way and one's going to walk that way. So the yoke keeps them together. So what God is saying there is, I am the one that knows the way you need to go. I'm the one that's created you. I'm the one that's called you in a relationship with me. I need to yoke you to myself so that you can make this journey. But you are a stiff-necked people. That's basically talking about an animal that will not take on the yoke. That's what it's talking about. Stiff-necked is whenever the farmer's trying to put the yoke on there and the animal just keeps turning going, no, I don't want that thing on me. In essence, that's what's happening with the people. They're hearing, this is what a relationship with God looks like. This is what it requires of us. And they're like, no, I don't want to do that. I want to worship what I've created. I want to give my life to whatever I want to give it to. And that's why he calls them the stiff-necked people, because they're so disobedient. And disobedience always has consequences to it. Some are felt immediately. Sometimes the consequences are felt a little later on. Sometimes the consequences are physical. Sometimes the consequences are emotional or spiritual. It's always different. I want you to think about their sin again for a moment. God wanted to come and live among them, but instead they built a representation of God with their hands, and the scripture says they put it among them. They gathered around it. The calf was built from all the blessing of gold that God had secured for the people that they brought out of Egypt. God has already told Moses on the mountain, I want the people to use that gold to build the house that I'm going to come and live in. And instead, they used that blessing to build what they wanted to with their own hands and to worship it. Think about that for a moment. They chose to worship the blessing instead of worshiping the blesser. They chose to worship the things that God had provided for them instead of the one who was providing it, the provider himself. You see, the golden calf is a representation of everything in your life that you give your desire and attention to, but isn't God. Oftentimes, those are very good things. They're just not God. And you give your heart and your devotion, and your time, and your attention to these things. I want you to feel the weight of this passage here. Up to this point, everything has been about God moving in with his bride, so to speak. Again, talking about it from that wedding context. Now, all of a sudden, God says to Israel, you get to go to the land, but I'm not going to come in among you. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. God, in essence, is saying to them this. I realize what I promised. I promised you to become a people, to be a nation. I promised to give you a land, 
Not just any land, because I could just leave you here in the wilderness if it was just any land. But I promise to give you land flowing with milk and honey. I've brought you out of Egypt. I told you I was going to do that. You walked out with gold and silver and bronze and all kinds of good things. I was faithful to that. Now, here's what I'm going to let you do. I'm going to let you go into the land and experience all of the blessing. I'm just not going to be there to enjoy it with you. It reminds me of a story. This is someone that I knew personally. There was this lady and this gentleman. They'd been married before. They fell in love. I remember the church that I was at, we as a group, had talked about this and talked about how this was not a good thing. And it was the counsel of the church for them to not get married because we saw so much animosity and difficulty. But the lady who was the one who was actually the member of the church and the man was not, he was from the outside, went to another church, but he was not a member there. So our dealings was more with the lady. And we kept telling her, not a good thing, don't do this. I mean, I'm telling you, you're, you're... it's going to be miserable. And she went ahead with it. And I kid you not, they had the wedding, they had the reception, and before they ever had a chance to go to the honeymoon, they broke up. But they prepaid the honeymoon. So she and her daughter went ahead to the honeymoon without him. And As I was reading this passage, I began to think about that experience because I thought, you know what? This isn't all that far off from what God's promising them. Saying, you know what? You want all the blessing. You want the good time. You want the scenic environment. But you really don't want me. You don't want a relationship with me. What you want is just the blessings that come from a relationship with me. And it's almost like a lot of us, what we have given into is just to experience the blessing of God without experiencing a relationship with God. And it's what we've wanted for so long. I think it's very interesting. All of a sudden, Israel still gets to go to the land, but God's not going with them. In a very strange way, it's almost like God is giving them exactly what they wanted all along. You want the blessing without the obedience. You want the benefit without the responsibility of a relationship. All the blessing with none of the responsibility. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is that what you want? Do you just want the promise of salvation? The eternity in heaven? The good times? The protection? But you don't want the relationship with God? Think about that for a moment. If I said to you, hey, today, as you walk out the door, I'm going to give you a contract that you can sign it, and it absolves you of any responsibility of coming back here again. Now listen, you have all the protection that the church offers you. We're still going to show up when you need us. Uh, we're, we're, We're still going to pray for you while you're out there doing your thing. But you don't ever have to come in here and have a relationship with any of us. You don't ever have to come to a small group 
You don't ever have to come and listen to a sermon. You don't ever have to come and do any of that stuff anymore. I wonder how many people would be willing to sign that. Because the truth is, that's very revealing about the heart, isn't it? And here's the honest truth. is Many of us have made, in our minds, that kind of deal with God. God, give me the salvation. Give me the promise of eternity. Give me the freedom of the removal of the guilt. But don't burden me with a whole bunch of obedience. Don't burden me with the fact that you own my life now. And everything I have is yours because I've been bought with a price. Don't, don't burden me with that. I want the land flowing with milk and honey. I don't want the responsibility of that relationship. I mean, see, this picture right here is exactly where so many Christians live today. And you know what's crazy is on the front side of it, it sounds so appealing. But my question is, what good is the blessing? What future does it have? If you don't know God. Look how it continues in verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. In other words, the gold earrings and the gold chains and all those kinds of things. Verse 5 For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Wow. That was kind of unexpected, don't you think? I mean, we kind of expected them to go, we'll take that deal. We still get the land flowing with milk and honey. We still get to go in there. You're going to still take care of the enemies and push them out. We'll take it. But something in their mind said that even though that might have been what their heart desired, whenever it came down to it, they were so convicted of like, but what's the point of living in a land if we have no God? What's the point of enjoying the blessing if we don't know the one who is the blesser? From disobedience to obedience, complete and dedicated obedience, all of a sudden, in one verse, everything changes. (laughs) See, when the people heard the word of the Lord through Moses, the scripture says there that they mourned. Now, it's important to remember that these are the people that have already repented. Remember that, okay? You remember what happened last week. It came to this point where Moses said, if you're on the side of Yahweh, you come get behind me. And there were at least 3,000 men that didn't come and get behind him. They were wiped out. So the only people left at this point are people who've already repented, who've already said, I'm on the side of Yahweh. These are the ones who chose to move to the Lord's side. This is an important lesson as well. Even in repentance, there are still consequences. Just because you say, well, you know what, I realize the error of my ways, and God forgive me of that, and I am on your side, doesn't mean that the sin that was perpetrated in your disobedience doesn't have detrimental consequences that will still follow that. Yes, God can forgive you. Yes, you can be forgiven and even sustained doesn't mean there's going to be zero consequences. Maybe this is a sign that the people are beginning to grow spiritually. The text tells us that they divested themselves of their jewelry. 
In other words, all the things that they used to create the golden calf, they now have taken all the rest of it and they have not put it on their bodies. They've gotten rid of all their jewelry. Now, it's not hard to see the connection of this. That's what they used to create the idol. And according to the text, apparently, this was such a huge moment for the people that they became a people who did not wear jewelry for a very long time because the scripture says that they never put it back on from the Mount of Horb forward. They didn't put jewelry back on again. This was a decisive moment because the jewelry was a sign of the blessing that they had put their hope and their trust in and they gave their devotion to. It was the thing that represented God to them and God hated it. Did you hear what I just said? It was the thing that they created to say, we are going to worship God through this. This is going to be the representation of God among us. They thought it was a great idea. God did not. Now, sometimes I see these really weird things because I know so many people. And people just think I'm going to enjoy things that I don't enjoy. And they tell me I need to watch this and you need to see this and you need to read this book. And, you know, I've gotten to that point where I just don't do it anymore. But there was a point where someone said, you need to see this documentary. You're not going to believe this. And so I watched it. They had it on their phone like right in front of me and I watched part of it. It was a story about this man who had married a doll, a life-size doll. The documentary was about his life. He took this doll everywhere he went, put her in the car with her, went to work. Um, When he laid in bed at night, she was laying right next to him. He was hugging her. Uh, He helped her get dressed in the morning. Whenever he was drinking coffee, she was sitting across from him, and she had coffee there, and he would drink it and have conversations with her. She's going... And it came a point in this little documentary, again, I only saw a little snippet of it. But in the documentary, the doll began to, I guess, got worn out a little bit and stitching was coming off or something broke and had to be fixed. So he had to put it in a box and send it off. The documentary talked about how depressed this man was while this doll was gone until it came back. And when it came back and he got to unwrap it and take it out of the box again, he was so overjoyed. And I just looked at the person I said, why in the world did you just waste so much of my life showing me this? This is the stupidest thing that I've ever seen in my life. And I've never thought about it again until I was reading this passage. And I was like, you know what? This is kind of like that documentary that I saw. Think about that for a moment. This guy chose to have a relationship with an inanimate object. And he carried on like it had some kind of benefit to him. He treated it as if it were real. It's exactly what the people were doing with this idol. They created it with their own hands. It was man-made. And yet it was a representation of something they desired so much. And the question is, why don't you just go to the real thing? You know why? The real thing comes with all kinds of consequences. Can I get an amen? Anybody wish sometimes you were married to a doll? That you could just sit across from you and never talks back, never spends any of your money, never does any of that, you know? As twisted as it seems, there are aspects to it that we would all go, you know what? Maybe that guy's smarter than we think he is. Because relationships are difficult. 
But it's in the difficulty of relationships that we have the opportunity to grow. You see, whenever that guy has a relationship with his doll, he never grows. You know why? He's never challenged in any way, form, or fashion. He becomes self-absorbed, and everything's about him. It's about what he wants to talk about. It's about his pleasure. It's about his idea, what he wants to go, where he wants to go that day. It's all about him. He's never challenged. Same is true with Israel and the golden calf. That golden calf's never going to challenge you. You can direct it whatever way you want. You can create whatever kind of religion, whatever kind of responsibilities, and you can create whatever form of worship you want to around it. It's not going to ever rebel. It's not ever going to say, no, you shouldn't be doing that. It's just going to sit there and be obedient because it's an inanimate object. And for a lot of us, that's what we've done. We have worshipped religion instead of God. Because with religion, we can make it say or do whatever we want it to. Look at the Pharisees in the New Testament. They just reinterpreted the law of Moses to make it fit their lifestyle. I'm glad that we don't have golden calves anymore. Things that we give our devotion and our time and our money to instead of giving it to God. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad we don't have things like that that we carry around with us and that are specifically designed to hold our attention? Things that we look for for information, for direction in life, for information about who won what game and maybe what I should do and maybe some information about this or that because I'm curious about it. Hey Siri, you know, these things are designed to hold your attention. Have you ever noticed it? Go to a restaurant today after church. I give you permission to go to a restaurant and eat. Um, and just look around the restaurant and see how many people sitting at the table with their family are going. Notice next time you go somewhere where you have to stand in line, how many people standing in line, instead of carrying on a conversation with someone around them, are going. This is our doll you don't believe me, try to put it down. I did this. You know what happened? Everybody got mad at me. I'm not lying to you. I did. I, made, in my, I said, you know what? I'm just going to go back to when I was a kid. When I was a kid, some of you older adults, you know what I'm talking about. The phones were connected to the wall. You couldn't get away from the wall if you're talking on the phone. You couldn't go talk to somebody out on the front porch. That, unless you had that really long line that we all invested in at some point, you know. And the teenagers would go all the way into a closet and shut the door and talk on the phone. That was the only way you got privacy because that phone was stuck on the wall. So I thought about myself, I said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to leave my phone in one place and I'm just going to come back to it. I'm going to pretend like it's stuck to the wall. So I'm going to come back and if anybody's called me, I'll call them back. Or if I need to call someone, I have to go sit in that one spot. Everybody got mad at me. My family got mad at me. My, my work associates got mad at me. You know why? Because I never answered it. Never returned texts until like one part of the day. And they're like, where are you? And the thing is, I'm paying for this. Why does it get to direct my life? But yet... Daily, we make ourselves obedient to these things, and we become addicted to them. They rule our lives, they take our attention, and we give them willingly our devotion. You know, I think it has something to do with this. Number one is your spiritual growth is always an indicator of your relational growth. 
If you say to me, you know what, I just don't feel like I'm growing spiritually. You know why? It's because you're not connected to God. You know, it's, it's not because you need another Bible study. It's not because you need to, you know, go to a different church or you need to do something different or listen to different worship music. It's because you're not connected to God. God is the source of religious growth. God is the source of spiritual growth. God is the source of relational growth. You can't do it without a relationship with God. You can't supplement anything for that. And yet, that's what we try to do. Man, I feel so down spiritually. What am I going to do? I'm going to buy another book. I'm going to commit to another reading plan. I'm going to give up this thing and embrace this kind of lifestyle. That's not where it's found. It's found in a relationship with God. Think about this for a moment. Your money, your wealth, your blessing is another indicator of your spirituality. Let me ask you this question. Do you give to God out of what's left Or do you give to him until it's uncomfortable? That's convicting. Do you give to God out of what's left? Or do you give to the point that it becomes uncomfortable? Because when you do that, you've determined what's the most important thing in your life. My relationship with God and his kingdom and his glory and the manifest of that glory throughout the globe. That's the most important thing to me. Therefore, my time, my attention, and my money are going to go to those things. But instead, what we do is we give God what's left of our money, what's left of our time, and what's left of our devotion. Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, Jesus said some words that, should, that we should spend some time today reflecting on. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You cannot divorce your heart from your treasure. That's what he's saying. Doesn't matter what you want to do. Doesn't matter what you will. Doesn't matter if you sit there and think, well, I can do this and still be dedicated to God. Nope. Where your treasure is, where you're putting your time and your energy and your money, your heart, your devotion, your worship is engaged in that. Don't fool yourself. What is your treasure today? What's that thing that you think about all day long? What's that thing that you think about when you get up in the morning? And you're thinking about it before you go to bed that night. What's that thing that often comes up in conversations that you have with other people? You wish you had enough money to get it, or maybe you've already borrowed money to get it because you couldn't wait. Maybe it's something that you think about a lot, but you don't really want anyone else to know how much you think about it, or you may not want anybody to know that you think about it at all but yet it consumes your thoughts. It's what you think about all day long, and you can't wait to experience it or think about it again. Think about this for a moment. We should not focus so much on what he does for us that we neglect who he is for us. You see that? We should not focus so much on what he does for us that we neglect who he is to us. 
in the uh, shorter catechism, there's this question that says, what is the chief end and duty of man? Does anyone know? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the Westminster Short Catechism. What is the chief end and duty of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of David Wilkerson? He was the pastor of Times Square Church. My mom loved to listen to this man preach. Matter of fact, she would get his newsletters and she would give them to me all the time. Read, you got to read this one. You got to read this one. You got to read this one. David Wilkerson is a very interesting um, testimony. He was a kid that at eight years old experienced a feeling of the Holy Spirit. This is his own testimony. And that, that's when he began preaching. And God used him in a mighty way. He was like a pastor of a church at 15 years old. Um, he started preaching conferences and traveling, and he bought this really nice RV. And he was traveling all over the United States in this RV doing these, these revivals and stuff. And one day, he was studying in the book of Romans. I believe it was Romans. And when he was studying there, he became so convicted that his life was worthless. He said, you know what? I've given myself over to the amenities of this life. It started off in a good place, but all I'm doing is just gathering stuff for me. And that's the moment where he turned his attention away from being that revivalist to selling his RV and moving to New York City and creating a ministry to the drug addicts and the prostitutes on the streets. He said, those are the people that deserve my time. And he went, and of course, you've probably read or seen the movie Crossing the Switchblade. That came from his experience there in New York City. And then he began, to, he began the church, still there, called Times Square Church, unaffiliated with any denomination. And if you go there today, you will still find the same thing. If you walk into Times Square Church, anybody been there? I've been there, seen it. You walk into Times Square Church, the most ordinary looking place you'll ever see. Metal chairs, that's what everybody sits on. You, you've got it nice. You've got plastic. There's just those metal chairs. Whenever Dave Wilkerson would come up on the stage and they would have a guest, whatever, they would sing, there would be two metal chairs sitting on the stage. That was it. That's what he would sit on until it was time for him to come and preach. And the reason he said that was, I don't want to get involved in the ornamentation of everything, that it steals my heart and my devotion away from who God is. I don't want to get caught up in the things that I miss the one who is the blessing in it all. You will never enjoy your relationship with God until it is his glory that you live for. Did you hear it? You will never enjoy your relationship with God until it's his glory that you live for. If you're living for the glory of anything else, there's always going to be consternation. There's always going to be this division. There's always going to be this separation. You're never going to get that full enjoyment from your relationship with God. You're always going to be something you're like, just something isn't right. I don't feel spiritual. I don't feel connected. I don't feel. It's because you're not living for his glory. You're giving it to something else. That's where we make these mistakes over and over again. But isn't it awesome that this same text reminds us that in a moment, God is willing to listen for the repentant heart 
and he runs to them and enjoins himself to them. And he wants to know them, and more than anything, he wants them to know him. That is the great benefit. Let's pray. God, thank you for a word that reminds us of this truth, who you are, who we are, where blessing comes from, and ultimately what our lives should be dedicated and devoted to. So God, in this moment, would you make this very real to us? As we reflect on your word, we ask that you would add a blessing to the teaching of your word, and we pray that it would bring conviction in our heart, but that conviction that would lead to restoration. Lord, there's so many things that we could devote ourselves to. I ask, in the name of Jesus, that you would reveal this to our hearts so that we may truly be free. We ask this in a name that's above every name, Jesus. Amen.